You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hey everyone, welcome to Music Tectonics, the podcast that explores the seismic shifts happening where music and tech collide. I'm your host for today, Trister Neuer Jaeger, strategist at Rock, Paper, Scissors, the music tech PR firm. I'm really eager to dive into our conversation today with founder and CEO, Obi Fernandez, one of the driving forces behind Record Shop, that's R-C-R-D-S-H-P, a new platform that combines digital collectibles, gamified elements, and a deep love of music culture, specifically uh, the culture and scenes and communities surrounding electronic music or dance music. Though based in a, a new or newish tech, you know, blockchain, NFTs, the focus of Record Shop is really on the music itself and the people, places, and collectives who make it possible. Thanks for joining me today, Obi. Thank you, Trissa. I love that intro. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'm so glad. Um, no, I've, I've really um, jumped on the bandwagon a lot and your, your, your passion is extremely contagious. So speaking of that, I, I'm going to ask you first off what I love to ask our guests to kick things off. And that is, how did you first develop a passion for music? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. It's <laughs> probably a typical reaction as well. Um, music was part of my life from my earliest memories. I remember, you know, swapping eight tracks in in the living room of of the first apartment that I can remember. I must have been, you know, probably four or five years old. Uh, And I remember being at my grandparents' house and they were avid record collectors and they had a lot of classical music and, you know, they had one of those 50s or 60s eras, uh, you know, wood console stereos, uh, you know, hi-fi type of things. And I remember my my grandfather teaching me how to play the records uh, appropriately without scratching them. And, um, you know, I was I was definitely familiar with Tchaikovsky and Beethoven and Mozart, you know, at, at an early age. And then there were piano lessons for several years, which I hated, uh, mostly because it was a half hour drive and my two of my siblings also took lessons. So I had to wait in the car with my grandmother, who smelled funny. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh, you know, um, I don't know. Um, yeah, I just, and then, and then maybe when I was a little bit older, I, I don't re- even remember exactly how, but we, we had a good relationship with some of our extended family. And one of my great aunts, her son, John, was a, a disco DJ in Newark, New Jersey. And, uh, he lived at home uh, with his parents, and, and he had a garage uh, full of records. I mean, he was—he's an older guy. I guess he was probably in his thirties at that point. And you know, he had a garage full of records, and he had equipment, and he had huge speakers and all these blinking lights and things. I just remember every time we would go over there, I would be overwhelmed. You know, I would want to go into the garage, look at the records. You know, and and John, John taught me to, to mix and to DJ when I, when I was 14, I brought my first turn, bought my first turntables with my summer job money. And I remember that he was visiting one day and he taught me how to beat match. And, um, I, I've just been obsessed with DJing and with, with music for a little while. I was making beats for a friend in high school who, who wanted to be a rapper. Uh, I used to DJ parties all over the place. I was a mobile DJ for, for several years. I had some residencies and, on the outskirts of New York and in New Jersey, I, I had a couple of, um, they weren't, they were definitely not high profile gigs, but, you know, played at some bigger clubs in New York a couple of times. Uh, that was significant memories and, uh, had some residencies in Atlanta in the early two thousands and, and helped run some raves. 
uh, it's just been an ever-present factor in my life. On top of your passion for and fascination with music, um, you've also built a really notable tech career as a coder, as um, an entrepreneur. But one thing that I found so interesting when I was thinking today about uh, how you got into technology, how you built companies, um, was your your tech background reminds me a bit of how a musician goes pro, right? You learn the ropes by diving in and doing things, not necessarily by getting um, extensive formal education, or even if you do, you have to go out and actually, you know, woodshed things, you have to pay your dues. So how did your past experience in tech shape your view of the music industry? Yeah, that, that's a fascinating question. I, I did, you know, I was definitely into tech from a young age. I, I was lucky enough to be born at a time uh, in the 70s where, you know, it meant that when I was in, in grade school, there there was, uh, we had Apple IIEs and Commodore PETs and programming was something that I, I started learning around third grade. We had a VIC-20 at home. I'm kind of dating myself, but, you know, <laughs> it's kind of where, where I started. Uh, me and my CTO at Record Shop actually learned programming together we were, we were nerds. I mean, we were into electronics, we were into programming, we were making video games at a pretty young age. Um, so, so it was, yeah, it was present. You, you wanted to tie it into how a musician goes about it. I guess, you know, if you're a musician who grew up in a musical family, my dad was definitely kind of nerdy. He uh, had an IBM PC and stuff like that, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I didn't go to, I didn't go to university. I come from a humble, you know, humble working class background. I didn't have very many prospects that kind of had to make my own opportunities. A lot of ways certainly had lucky breaks and it was great timing. Um, I just kind of stumbled into Java in 1995. It was probably one of the first people in the world doing professional Java programming, which was amazing. I've had some lucky breaks like that. Definitely something that any musician that, that has succeeded definitely has to go through some period of lucky breaks as well. Um, but, you know, generally just kind of looking for the right opportunities, being flexible, not getting too fixated on any particular style and any technology moving when it was time to move, you know, to a lot of the, a lot of the, the momentum that I got in my career, as far as the, the trajectory had to do with being in the right place at the right time. Uh, I mentioned that I was doing Java in the mid '90s, in the, in the late '90s. That was very good, and I did Java for about nine years. But then I did a hard shift over to Ruby on Rails, and and by that point was was at a stage in my career where I was able to become a leader in that field. It, it was an opportunity. It was it was a a, a time to shine uh, because there was there was a sea change coming, and and what Ruby on Rails represented at the time was an opportunity to to do a sea change, and I had a big hit. Uh, you know, the way that, that a musician might have score a, a chart topping hit or something like that. I wrote a book called The Rails Way, which is considered the Bible of Ruby on Rails development. And that kind of launched the, the second half of my career where I was able to start my own web development agency called Hashrocket. I later sold that and that set the foundation for all the entrepreneurial activity that's come since. Looking closely at the tech world um, and, and sort of mastering some of the ups and downs there, 
how I mean, when you when you became and just you know for the listeners, um, you know, Obi has gigged uh, a lot as a professional music creator as a DJ. Um, how you know you started looking at the music business and what did you see as you know coming again from this tech background where you know agility, efficiency, um, you know certain things like that are are key, and then you look at the music business, it must have been a little bit of a study in contrast to put it diplomatically. Well, let, let's be real. I mean, I was, you know, uh, 20, 25 years into a successful tech career. Well, not that I've really left my tech career, but about four years ago, just to set some context, I moved to, I moved to Mexico. My, my, uh, I have two older kids and, and my youngest went off to college and I, I had agreed that we would move overseas when, when that happened. So we moved, I moved my family to Mexico. And my cost of living dropped significantly. And at, at some point, the, there's actually a funny story. I'll go ahead and tell. I may have told you uh, this in the past, but I was I was working alongside a friend of mine, Luis, and um, I was goofing off. I probably should have been doing some client work. And I was, I was looking at uh, what they call studio porn, which is like pictures of nice music studios and something like that. And... Uh, I, I remember turning to Lisa and going, oh, you got to check this out. It's like just picture of a really cool studio. And he looked at it and he just kind of looked at me really disgustedly. Luis is a friend of mine. He's Venezuelan. Uh, he's Venezuelan expat. He's a bass player, kind of a funny guy, very, very uh, sarcastic wit. And he's like, he looks at the, the studio porn, the beautiful studio picture. He looks at me and he's like, F you, man. <laughs> um, censoring myself for your podcast here. I don't know how... <laughs> But, no, that's cool. You, Thanks for you, keeping you know, it family friendly. And, um, <laughs> I was like, what? And, and he goes, dude, you have the money, the time and, and the resources to actually set up a beautiful studio like that. And I don't. So F you. <laughs> and so that, that was about four years ago. And it, it um, you, you know, some would argue that it provoked a little midlife crisis <laughs> for me, you know, being in my mid 40s uh, or going into my mid 40s. And I, I was like, you know what? this guy's right. Like, you know, I do have, I do have the ability to have a studio like that. And I started working on it. And I, and also, I mean, I had been making music since 2001, kind of on a hobby basis, you know, with what you would call a bedroom producer, I guess. And I had started making music again, uh, a little more than I had over the years, just because I had a little more free time as I got older. And I decided to, to go for it. You know, it's like, okay, let's, let's figure this out, you know, and then, and I started diving into, okay, well, what, what's it going to take to tour? What's it going to take to get signed and whatnot? Um, I had some significant help along the way uh, with some, some producers I became friends with and asked for tutorial help, you know, like basically I was too proud to just go the full ghost production route, right? Like I know that one, one viable way, if you have money is just to go ahead and buy your tracks and it. I always imagined that if I, if I did get lucky with a ghost produced track and like it, it became popular in some way that people would be like, wow, I love what you did with, you know, with such and such track. And I just couldn't live with my, my pride could not bear like having a smile and, and grin and go, yeah, it's awesome. Isn't it? And like knowing deep inside that I didn't actually <laughs> yeah. work on it. So that, that was a non-starter. I had already been working on music for years. The problem is that the 80, 20% rule you know, pops up in this circumstance where that last 20% of finishing a track is actually kind of hard. Right. So 
uh, you know, it takes years to learn. So you got to get help with that, or at least, you know, some pretty heavy duty instruction. And I was humble enough to realize that, you, you know, you were, you were kind of asking me to tie it to your tech career. I mean, one of the things I learned in your tech career is that you, you can't be an expert in everything. Like, and it's okay to get expert help when you need it. And, and this was a case where I just went, went ahead and got the right help you know, to start finishing tracks because I wasn't interested in putting out crap, right? Like I was already at a stage in my life and my career and my personal pride where I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. Um, you know, one of, one of my first singles was signed on Perfecto Records and it was something I was really proud about and, you know, got, got some other good signings. But um, along the way, you know, if you want to talk about study of contrasts, I mean, it's not necessarily that I wanted to make a living with music, but once I started figuring out what a touring musician makes, you know, especially as, you know, a C list or B list, you know, like, you know, when you're starting out, I was like, Whoa, like this is a big difference in the six figures a year I'm used to making. Uh, you know, even, even if you're successful, I think as a touring DJ, you're lucky if you're pulling down a hundred thousand a year after expenses, you know? So I kind of knew once I started looking seriously into it, that it wasn't going to be a way to make a living. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's a reality everyone's got to face, right? And that, that's part of what propels me today in terms of the project I'm working on. And we will get to the mm-hmm. full details of that project in just a second after a quick break. We are thrilled to announce that Will Page and Vicki Nauman will sit down for a fireside chat at Music Tectonics 2021 conference. Will Page just came out with a book, Tarzan Economics, that distills essential principles for pivoting through disruption. He's learned those lessons through 20 years of watching the rise and fall of the music industry's fortunes as former chief economist at Spotify and other leading companies. Come to Music Tectonics to get Will's insights on how the pandemic accelerated disruptions to the music industry and what's next on the horizon. He'll be in conversation with Vicki Nauman, tech-savvy consultant and music industry connector. Will and Vicky's fireside chat will be part of the online conference October 25th through 27th. But don't forget, one ticket also lets you join safe in-person events on November 2nd in Los Angeles. And those will be very fun. Get your Music Tectonics ticket at musictectonics.com. Okay, we're back here with Obi uh, Fernandez of Record Shop. Um, And Obi, I would love uh, to start out this segment with just a bit about what Record Shop is, um, and it you know it's got a really intriguing model, and so it'd be great if you could just lay out the basics for us so that everyone can can get kind of where you're coming from. Cool. Um, so the the basics are, and kind of what's propelled me is that you know now I've been working, let's say, in the music industry, let's scare quotes, so, you know, for for four years and releasing music and started organizing parties again and stuff like that and, and interacting with a lot more touring DJs again and realizing that there's very little money in this. And then during pandemic, um, I started hearing about friends that were selling studio equipment. I was going, man, but, you know, this guy has a ton of fans, you know, like talking hundreds of thousands of fans, you know, legendary music. Like, why is he selling studio equipment? It's, it can't just be a matter of bad financial planning or, you know, stuff like that and, and realizing, okay, we're probably as musicians leaving money on the table. Like there, there's prop, there's probably a way 
to capture some of the revenue that that we used to get as artists during the quote unquote golden years. Like, like I start questioning some of the accepted wisdom, let's say, or some of the status quo of, of the current business model around how you make money, which right now is primarily streaming and touring, right? Um, and, it, and one of the other things that bothered me and, you know, just making this personal is that when I, I at some point, during the first year or so, I, I got someone to, to quote unquote manage me and to help me, you know, build my image. And he wasn't, he wasn't being authentic, you know, to who I was. Like he was trying to get me to dress up and do, you know, like I've mentioned uh, in this context, you know, doing funny dances on Instagram or TikTok or, you know, things like that. It just feels like musicians around the world are being asked to do a lot of other things that are not music. And in fact, the other day on Clubhouse, uh, I heard uh, BT, who's one of my personal heroes, say that his music was a loss leader. And that killed me. That, that, that really, really killed me to hear someone like BT, who, who is so musically gifted, so talented, works so hard is so proud of what he's accomplished. And as a fan of his, I'm so proud of what he's accomplished. For him to say that his music is a lost leader was devastating to me, and I'm sure devastating to, to a lot of people to think that that's the case. And I'm saying, as a society, are we really willing to throw out that baby with, with the bathwater? If the bathwater is this new attention economy that we live in and TikTok and user-generated content and all these new realities that we need to deal with as musicians. So, so anyway, that's the big long context context. And I'm sorry, cause I ramble. It's all good. What record shop is, is a platform and that platform has a system, a, you know, a, a series of mechanisms and practices and patterns so that as musicians and as, uh, you know, musician related entities like brands, uh, record labels, parties, festivals, even music equipment providers, we can create almost tangible digital goods that are of interest to fans. And what do I mean by almost tangible? There's kind of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, for those of you that are, that are not aware of them quite yet, they provide a way of creating digital items that are scarce goods or limited edition in the way that a assigned autographed collectible as a limited edition in the way that a box set from you know that was only there were only a thousand or you know five thousand created of is a limited commodity only five thousand fans can have that nfts give you the power to do that with digital goods and if you're an early adopter and you're a nerd or you have nerdy friends and you know, you're set crypto savvy and blockchain savvy, like you can definitely go out and do this yourself. And Tom Diablo has been doing it and rap RAC and uh, most notably Blau, you know, did, did it with the big NFT purchase mm-hmm. in the spring. And that, that was a big deal. And it's like, that's great. What we're doing is taking the learnings from what they did and systematizing it in a way that that can be um, taken advantage of by more artists and by mainstream artists as well. And I'm not talking about Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande and pop stars and major labels. I'm talking about the people who are currently left out 
you know, the people who are not making ends meet and yet do have a legacy of great music, do have legions of fans, do have a lot of hard work that they've poured into their careers, like something for them. And I think that there's so many of them out there, you know, right now that there, there's a very good opportunity. So, so we exist in the middle, you know, you, we, you, we have the major labels and everything that they're doing with their pop stars and that's all well and good. And then there's, there's also like this very, very fertile ground on, on the small grassroots side, you know, with a lot of crypto projects and DAOs and uh, new, new models and new ways of sharing copyright and licensing and things like that. There's a lot of bubble, there's a lot of little bubbles and, and fertile ground for experimentation there, but it's all small. So, so we're, we're trying to provide something for the meaty middle, the, the middle of that long tail uh, with significant artists, you know, household names within their genres uh, to be able to do something that makes sense, that is authentic to who they are artistically, that really lets them bring the most value out of whatever concepts they bring to the table. Uh, some of them some of those artists are not going to be conceptual in, in the way that we typically talk about concept art or, or music concepts. Some of them are just going to be very focused on, on, on their music and that's totally fine. But, but some of them do have these rich universes of characters and, and themes that they, that they revisit time and time again in their music and that they can, they can draw upon and create interesting collectibles for their fans. And we think their fans will eat it up, you know, in the way that we've seen happen with, with other NFT projects. So. Yeah, there's a lot of world building done by by artists who aren't necessarily entertainers that is scattered or um, very difficult for the artists to uh, you know reap the benefits of in some sort of monetary fashion. So um, one way that Record Shop does engages with fans or lets fans engage with the artists' worlds um, is through gamification, and you know that's kind of a buzzword. It's a it's a concept. It can feel very abstract or like. Uh, jargony. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about how you guys approached um, the music fan experience on Record Shop and how the sort of gaming ideas play into um, how people can interact with the collectibles. So it's not just like an NFT where you buy it and then you brag about it. Um, <laughs> tell me a bit about how you guys have set things up to make it a little bit more exciting and fun. Sure. The, the fan experience is generally about how big of a fan you are, like how much does it define your life, right? So there's certain key artists who are so significant in your life if you're a music fan that let's say your friends know that you're a fan of that artist. Your mom knows that you're a fan of that artist, you know, because they, they help define who you are. And as someone who has been that way my whole life, you know, I think that's a really cool part of humanity. And that that's part of what I don't want to go away, right? Like I want my grandchildren to retain that. I don't want music and musicians to become so commoditized the value that that no longer even exists anymore. The way that we gamify it has to do with the ways that you authentically engage with the artists that you love and make them part of your life. You, you can break that up into different categories. I mean, some, you know, some of our categories of, of gamification have to do with like how much you engage with that artist or their collectibles in ways that let you produce increasingly rare collectibles or artifacts, you know? Um, so combining different common collectibles, you know, could result in rare 
collectibles. Uh, we define rare on the platform as having less than a thousand copies, I believe. Um, or, le- you know, combining rare collectibles uh, can result in legendary collectibles, which are collectibles have less than a hundred copies. And, and the results of, of holding those rare and legendary cards can be closer engagement, closer relationship with the artists themselves. Like some of our legendary cards will eventually uh, have communications privileges with the artists themselves. Um, and, and part of what we're trying to drive there is uh, engagement, whether it's gamified or not, that increases patronage uh, both, on both sides of the equation. You know, uh, as fans, we like to patronize our our favorite artists. And I, I actually believe that as artists, we like to receive that patronage, not just for its benefits, but also because um, it's nice to have relationships with your top fans, right? Like, um, why do we, we invite fans into the green room? Why do we let fans be in the DJ booth sometimes? You know, because they're our supporters. They're the ones that got us there. And... Um, you know, we're looking for ways to enhance that experience. Uh, there's, there's also other, you know, kind of gamified mechanics uh, that incorporate, uh, you know, kind of prediction markets, let's say. I don't want to get too specific on that because, you know, it's some of our secret sauce. Uh, there, there's ways of gamifying that involve, uh, you know, completing collections and, and what the results of that are. Or, uh, and, and actually we're, we're even planning to dip our toes into some of the user generated content possibilities for, for fans that like to create fan art, you know, and how can they get recognized by their favorite artists and, you know, participate in actually creating cool stuff for, for other fans. So it, there's a wealth of opportunities here. And th- this is one of the rare things I've worked on in my life where I look at the landscape and it's just a completely greenfield opportunity. I mean, there's just so much area for innovation. There's so much open uh, possibilities. It's whole huge open world of possibilities when you start, especially if you start looking at this as a, as an opportunity to lay the foundation for a music metaverse, which is something we're huge on. Basically how far do you down the rabbit hole? Do I want to go as an artist? You know, like do, do I want to have a whole line of digital toys, you know, like, do, do I want to have my DJ action figure collect, you know, as a collectible by my fans and they can put me in a DJ booth that they put together, you know, which is outfitted with, you know, collectible lasers and video screens. And like, if they collect one of my mixes and they load it into that scene, will I, you know, will my digital avatar play that mix? You know, it's, it's like, this reality, this new reality that we're talking about that, you know, that includes these, these kinds of things that I was just talking about is not going to happen all at once, right? Like it's going to, it's a complex world that's going to be built up from more primitive building blocks. We're building those building, the, those building blocks, you know, we're, we're creating those primitives for this, this new metaverse uh, driven environment. While remembering, this is one of the things that gives me pause, is that you know, in science fiction, metaverses are generally dystopian. And, and one of the things that's made me and a lot of people very sad uh, during pandemic is realizing that it's accelerating our, um, you know, transformation as a society into this world that lives increasingly online. And I think many of us um, shudder at the, you know, at the possibility uh, hinted at, or not hinted at, but basically indicated in movies like Wall-E, 
where humanity is on this spaceship and they're all obese and they're sitting in these recliners and they have VR headsets on. And it's, it's gross. Like to someone who, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a DJ. I love to make people party to play music that makes them feel good in a live setting. You know, like I started streaming on Twitch when the pandemic started and that lasted for a few months and then I got tired of it because I was like, this is, this is bull. Like, you know, this is not, this is not what I signed up for. Like, this is not, this is yeah. not real. Um, so yeah. So, you know, it's a complex, it's a complex subject for, for many of us and there are some mixed feelings involved. Well, I think one element that's rarely discussed in the music realm, um, but that would be vital to uh, creating perhaps a metaverse that wasn't a blatant dystopia is the aesthetics of it, right? So you talk about, uh, you know, every artist having their own, either their own kind of world building project or concepts or characters that come up again and again, or even just the, the aesthetics of a community and a different, I mean, especially in the electronic music world where so many communities are very proud of their of their culture that they built um, through their music and through their, their fashion and aesthetics. So I'm wondering if we could talk for a second about digital experiences and the aesthetics of them. How do you give people the tools to reflect their music or their um, community fully? And how do we make it so it's a positive one that increases engagement and, dare I say, human happiness, as opposed to um, damning us all to um, a more fractured, fragmented, um, psychologically depressed state? Sorry, I'm throwing the big questions here at you, (laughs) Obi. (laughs) Sorry about that. okay. Um, how do we give them the tools to, to make it authentic? Yeah. What does that look like? What does that feel like? There's deep philosophical answers to that, which would probably involve us like, you know, smoking a joint or something. <laughs> but I'll give, I'll give you, I'll give you the, the, my basic fundamental assumption, which is at the heart of what we're doing at Record Shop is let the musicians make more money <laughs> with their art. Yeah. You know, like that frees up room for deeper exploration of that art. It's like super simple and super obvious, right? Like right now, the the pace at which you need to output new work keeps accelerating because in order to stay relevant and keep your stream numbers up, you have to put something out every two weeks. That is not conducive to authentic, innovative uh, you know, groundbreaking work that is conducive to lowest common denominator, you know, phone it in, uh, take advantage of whatever hacks you can, you can take advantage of. That's the dirty little secret of the industry right now, or, you know, maybe not even a secret, you know, is that everyone's in this mode where they need to produce, 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 produce. And that's destroying our culture. It's destroying our culture. You know, there, there's no room for, for innovation when you can't make enough money with, you know, what you do produce. We're, we're trying to turn that tide. And I, I know it's really, really hard, but the payoff, you know, the payoff would be so huge, you know. I think that's an interesting point that giving artists more resources to work with would fire up their creativity. I mean, how many I, I, you know, in my past life as a music publicist, I talked to so many artists who, you know, had visions that they couldn't act on. Right. Because they just didn't have the budget. So it's cool to think that what would what would we unleash if people had more money to reinvest in their creativity? That's right. And, 
you know, like uh, concepts take time to get right. You know, um, you, you know, I just remembered Janelle Monet. You, you, are you a fan oh, of yeah. Janelle Monet? Yeah, yeah. You, you remember when she came out? I mean, with with some of her concept albums, I, I'm trying to remember what the name of the first one was. But, you know, there was art involved. There was ideation. There was, you know, it's kind of like creative, artistic direction that as an individual producer, just putting tracks out, you know, you can't achieve. But there, if you think about the reason that you can't achieve it is because there's just not enough money there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like exactly. unless you're independently wealthy or something, you, you know, it's just not going to happen. Right. Like you, you don't have the money to recruit the artists that you need and to take the time to, to actually do it right. Um, and therefore, it's not worth taking the risk. But if, you know, if we increase tenfold the amount of money you can make and, and actually give most of it to you up front, uh, I think you'll see artists, you know, going back to the drawing board and, and reconsidering their workflows, reconsidering how much they invest into individual releases. And that, that's something that makes me incredibly excited as a fan. That is really super exciting. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about what might lie ahead and a little bit of fun speculation in just a second after a quick break. Whoa, the ideas are flying fast on this episode. If you want to follow up on anything we're talking about today, we've made it easy. Head over to musictectonics.com and find this episode on the podcast page. You'll see show notes full of links and a time-stamped roadmap of the conversation. We're not responsible for internet rabbit holes you tumble down in the process. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Hey, we're back with Obi Fernandez, the founder and CEO of Record Shop. And now we get to, I I mean, I I love finding out how people get excited about music, but I love even more speculating about the future and letting people dream a little bit. And Obi, um, you are the kind of guest I think that is going to really rock (laughs) my favorite part, uh, which is looking ahead, imagining what could be. Um, So let's start a little bit more concrete. Where do you envision the music industry in five years or so, roughly? So let's say near term. Near term, um, we can talk about best case scenario. We can talk about worst case scenario. How are you feeling today? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, definitely best case scenario. I mean, I, I, I might as well have optimists stamped across my forehead. I mean, I, the way I motivate my team is to tell them exactly how we've revolutionized the music industry over the next five years and that it's already a done deal, that they just need to put one foot in, in front of the other. So uh, I'm very optimistic. You know, I, th- I think that there's, like I said before, such a big greenfield opportunity right now for experimentation and I think we're going to increasingly see uh, fans rewarding the artists that take risks and that, and that actually um, double down on the, on the authenticity of, you know, of those risks. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the risk of alienating your, your fans by going mainstream or something like that. I'm talking about the risks of changing genres or, you know, diverging from what your typical formula is, the risks of investing time and, and effort into uh, collaborating with visual artists uh, to, to doubling and tripling down on concept arts. Like, like I would, there, there's so many of my favorite artists that I would love to see like what's in the deepest, darkest recesses of their brain. If they, if we were going to make a, a universe, you know, and they don't all have to be roses. I mean, you know, like some of my favorite artists are pretty dark, right? Like I want to see what's down in there as well. I think a lot of other music fans are going to be delighted over the next five years 
to see what's possible. Um, the other thing too is that you know, speaking as someone whose earliest memory of, of having a poster signed at a concert was walking outside and dropping it in a puddle. <laughs> there's many, there's many advantages of, um, you know, dig, digital artifacts are really advantageous in a lot of ways. And I think the, the, that it's going to be a lot of fun to see them take off, right? Like in, in a way that, that is probably vastly beyond what we can even imagine right now. I mean, a lot of people are just kind of playing around with NFTs, trying to figure out what they're good for. Those of us that are really into NFTs see a future where almost everything has a digital counterpart. Um, you know, just to, get, to give you a silly example, like, uh, you know, whoever makes uh, Sharpies um, or, or Crayolas will probably be getting a call from one of us, you know, pretty soon. Because, like, I would love to be, be able to bring in, uh, you know, a pack of Sharpies uh, to, to mark up some of my digital collectibles. You know, if we're doing mixtapes on Record Shop, and I can see a future in which my, my video game character, uh, maybe not in Fortnite, but whatever comes after Fortnite, uh, you know, is, is wearing a, a Sony Walkman, which is an NFT that's playing a record shop mixtape, <laughs> you know? Yeah, the interesting uh, possibilities of sort of a hybridization of all these cool analog things of the past, um, plus whatever crazy stuff we could come up with that isn't you know, tied down to physical manufacturing or, you know, the, the physical world. I mean, that's like such a fertile place for exciting innovation and just crazy ideas that could be so much fun. It's like, um, you know, I, I, I think Ready Player One kind of, even though it's dystopian, you know, if you take some of the cooler aspects of that, um, you know, really, really kind of shows us what is possible uh, you, you know, the different ways you can repurpose brands and, and characters and intellectual property into things that they were never intended for. And yet it's cool. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it's dependent on the artists on how far down that rabbit hole they want to go. You know, like we were, we were talking uh, on my team about DJs, uh, you know, DJs having action figures, di- you know, digital action figures like toy, toy lines, you know, based on your favorite artists and stuff like that. And, you know, can you, can you play with them in this, in this metaverse setting? And uh, someone was like worried about, you know, whether, what if a fan draws a Hitler mustache on their, you know, yes. on their, on their artist <laughs> yeah. and, you know, and then tries to sell it or something like that. And I was like, well, that's, that's probably the least you should be worried about. Yeah. That, that wasn't where my, the digital my representation first. of you, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, some of that stuff's pretty screwed up, but, um, at the same time, you know, if if it provides a way for the artist to make money, um, and have a good living and thrive artistically without having to betray their core values, um, you know, in, in ways that are authentic to, to the music they make and the kind of life they want to have, then I'm all for it. You know, I I think it's going to be a very interesting time. So thinking more generally about, and maybe even longer term, what are some trends um, that you're really excited about? It doesn't have to be related to record shops specifically or to NFTs or um, anything that you're seeing happening right this moment, but you know, what do you really hope grows and thrives in music tech? What, what, things, um, what things are the stuff of dreams for you, Obi? 
I, you, you know, the one thing that's hit me in the face, you know, as we started working on this is just the, the stranglehold that the current licensing regime and copyright law and, um, you know, the entities that enforce the status quo, they, they just have a complete stranglehold on the industry. I mean, there's, there's so many things that we've considered or, you know, doing in record shop that the lawyers have told me, well, you could do that, but you're going to get sued. You, you know, so it's, and I, that puts a chilling effect across the whole industry. And I think that one of, one of the things I most look forward to is the disruption that the whole crypto aspect of it is bringing to it, right? There's a lot of people working on loosening those strangle, strangleholds um, towards a, a better world for everyone, including the rights holders. You know, I'm, I'm a musician myself. I don't want to, you know, completely destroy rights holding or copyright or the ability to earn royalties on the songs that I write, you know, but at the same time, I think any sane person that looks at the current system goes, this is not right. So what do I most look forward to? Yeah. I most look forward to a world in which by default, you know, it's easy to make things available. It's easy to, you know, for my fans to, participate in the creative process in all sorts of different ways, right? Like I, I'm a DJ, I make mashups, you know, that's, that's part of what I do. I think it should be easier to clear, like to pre-clear uh, your music to be mashed up and, and actually put out, you know, remix and stuff like that. You know, that there's just so many other things along those lines, you know, that I think are, are pretty interesting in the future. And, yeah. In some ways, the, the, I mean, not in some ways that the changeability, the fungibility, um, the mashup ability of uh, what, you know, digital media, um, especially music means that we need a new IP regime. And that regime has, you know, it's like it's it's been dawning or being hinted at for the last, what, 20, 30 years, and it's still not here yet. And that I think is a real pain point for everybody. Um, you know, it's 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 like we're all trapped in the same web. Um, finally changing though, yeah. it's, it, it really is finally changing. Cause I think we're, we're moving towards a world where the record labels, I think are becoming more like investors and VCs. They're helping to capitalize, mm-hmm. you know, to, uh, early talent and, but that early talent is not looking to, to stay with labels. I, I'm, I'm a big believer in the function of labels. I, and I think labels should get back into the business of A&R and artist development and, I think that eventually, you know, as a big artist, you you won't need a label and you'll have all these tools at your disposal, all these different platforms, including Record Shop, to to be able to realize your artistic vision in a productive way. But I think what happens is that once you have individuals in charge of their destiny, uh, a lot more innovation is possible because those individuals can take risks that bigger corporations cannot. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Obi, for joining me today. This was a really fun conversation. (laughs) Thank you, Tristan. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We put out new episodes every week. Want more? Find it at musictectonics.com. You can dig deeper into this episode, learn about our annual conference, get the Music Tectonics app, and sign up for our newsletter. Musictectonics.com has it all. Also, look for Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. And connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, on LinkedIn. Peace. Thank you.
You're listening to Music Tectonics. <laughs>